Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of First Lieutenant Alexander Bonnyman. Bonnyman is serving with the 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, part of the 2nd Marine Division during the Second World War. And today, we're going to talk about his actions in November of 1943 during the Battle of Tarawa. Tarawa is an interesting battle for a lot of reasons. There's some, some pretty important firsts during the Battle of Tarawa that we'll dive into here. But it's worth stepping back a little bit and kind of getting a big picture of where we sit in the Second World War at this time. So in December of 1941, the United States enters the war um, after the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor, before the end of the month, before the end of 1941, the U.S. is at war with Japan and Germany. So it's going to take it's going to take an effort to to mobilize the country and the resources and the men and material and equipment and all these things we need to fight. What we you know, there's no expectation that either one of these are going to be quick fights. Um, remember, this is just 30 years after the First World War that drug on longer than anybody expected and was more costly than anyone expected. So we we have to get ready. It's going to take a national effort to really be able to put the effort needed into the Pacific and European theaters. So as much as we want to strike back right away and just counterpunch the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, it's going to take a little while. But eventually in August of 1942, so eight-ish months after the attack at Pearl Harbor, we land forces on Guadalcanal. Now, that's not the first, you know, punch back uh, against Japan. Between uh, Pearl Harbor and Guadalcanal, there's going to be the Doolittle Raid in April, um, and then we'll have the Battle of Midway in June. So the United States has seen um, some success. We, we, we can't, I wouldn't say at this point that we've stopped the Japanese advance, and we certainly aren't rolling back the Japanese advance, but there's been a little bit of American success. And when we're looking at what overall success and victory looks like in the Pacific, the idea is going to be toppling the Japanese empire, toppling that, you know, government, if you will, the emperor. Well, to get there, to get to that point, really, when we start talking strategy in the Second World War, in the Second World War sometimes it makes sense to, to work it backwards, right? So if we're going to topple the Japanese empire as the end goal, how do we do that? Well, we need to have troops on the ground on mainland Japan, you know, taking that territory. All right. Well, to get there, we're going to need to have troops within assault range. So we can't, you know, they can't go from Hawaii. They're going to have to go from somewhere much, much closer. One of those areas, one of those possibilities is the Philippines. Of course, um, you know, by summer of 1942, the Philippines have uh, fallen entirely to Japan. But if we can retake the Philippines, then we have a staging area to invade Japan. So maybe the Philippines are in consideration. But in order to take the Philippines, we need to have a staging location within reach and maybe an area for land-based aircraft to support the landings and some harbors and some some a secure supply line. And, and you start working your way back and back and back, right, in order to take the Philippines – um, it'd be really, really helpful if we could take the Marianas. Well, to take the Marianas, we're going to need to take the Marshall Islands, right? One step closer. To take the Marshall Islands, we need to take the Gilbert Islands. 
And one of those Gilbert Islands, the first one you take in order to continue moving down that chain is Tarawa. So Tarawa is the, you know, could be considered the first step in this island hopping campaign. It's going to happen after Guadalcanal. Guadalcanal will be in the southwestern Pacific. Tarawa, the Gilbert, the Marshalls, and the Marianas on to um, you know, Okinawa and Iwo Jima. That's through the central Pacific. So when I said earlier, there's multiple strategies that kind of come together. We really started off the conflict in terms of troops on the ground in the southwestern Pacific that's going to move up kind of through New Guinea and, and assisting our, and working with our allies down there, Australia and uh, the New Zealanders. But then there's a decision to also incorporate a strategy through the Central Pacific. And, and if you have the resources and the capabilities, why not? Now the Japanese have to defend you know, a two-pronged attack. And when we're talking about Tarawa, we're talking about the movement through the Central Pacific that goes from the Gilberts to the Marshalls to the Marianas and on and on until, uh, well, really from the Marianas, we, we turn into a game changer, right? That's Now we're talking Tinian, Peleliu. Um, well, Saipan, Guam, and Tinian, and from, I believe it's Tinian, the Enola Gay will fly and drop um, atomic bombs. So the the Mariana Islands are kind of a game changer if we can get to that point. Again, backing it off to, um, let's back it off to November of 1943, U.S. forces are looking at this island of Tarawa. Now, this is going to be the first contested landing. When troops landed at Guadalcanal in August of the previous year, so over a year earlier, um, the landings weren't contested. It was a nasty, nasty fight on the island, but Marines weren't really stopped on the beaches by any stretch. On Tarawa, that's going to be the plan. And if you look at the Tarawa at, at the atoll, a series of islands, there's going to be an area that sticks out in the south, kind of the, well, the southwestern portion it's spelled B-E-T-I-O and pronounced Beso. Beso is the largest piece of land um, in this atoll, and it's like two miles long by 800 meters wide at its widest point. It's small. And that's kind of the story of Tarot and why this ends up being such a unique part of the war. Again, two miles long by 800 meters wide. That's not the entire... It's a bunch of little islands. They're kind of broken up, but there's kind of a causeway you can walk between these islands. So it's it's a blip in the middle of the ocean. So anyways, it's a blip in the middle of the ocean. We'll come back to that. But there's an understanding, especially after Marines land on Guadalcanal, that at some point the United States is likely to hit a handful of these islands. And in on, on Tarawa and the southwestern portion in Beso, there's an airfield. The airfield takes up like the entire island. Um, it's it's a triangle, kind of a triangle-shaped island. The airfield just about takes up the entire thing. But the Japanese know what's coming. They understand that certain places like this are going to be within the American, the American uh, crosshair. So they go about defending it. Now, this is early in the war. So defending it is going to mean things like shore batteries. There's, there's at least eight large caliber um, artillery pieces designed to stop landing craft come in. Eight. This is a small island. Again, remember, um, a lot of trenches will be dug. Now it's 1943. It's, it's, uh, one of, you know, the first big landing here. So we're going to see trenches, not tunnels that we'll see later. You can kind of see how this adapts. There are, um, I think 500, we'll call them fighting positions. Um, the terminology I saw was pillbox, 
but I don't want to suggest that there were 500 concrete enclosures on the island, but there were 500 fighting positions, sometimes made out of logs and sand. So not as though they were, you know, an open roof, um, easy to overrun fighting position. They were still pretty well, pretty well uh, protected in there. And at least 40 artillery pieces scattered across the island. But what you're not going to see at Tarawa that you saw that you'll see later in the war is kind of a defense in depth. Later in the conflict, you would see fighting positions scattered all across the island designed to just inflict mass casualties as the Marines came inland. That's not really the case at at Tarawa. The, the idea here more is stop them in the lagoon, stop them in the beaches, don't even allow them on shore. In fact, the Japanese commander was so confident in this you know, essentially a fortified little coral reef in the middle of the ocean was so confident in how well defended it was that he said it would take a million men 100 years to take Tarawa. Now there's, there's minefields, there's barbed wire, there's the only real approaches to the north, the south and western portion of, of, of Basio at least are, uh, they fall off um, into the ocean it's not a, not a real good landing approach, but there's a lagoon on, on the north. Of course, then the lagoon is mined and there's going to be, it's going to be zeroed in with all their artillery pieces, kind of expecting that that's where the Americans will come. And on the morning of 20 November, 1943, that's what happens. The Americans kick off their, kick off the, the landings at Tarawa after a pretty substantial naval bombardment. But what we're going to see is, you know, Maybe not the best comparison, but when we look at at the issues in in D Day in, uh, in Normandy, France, during Operation Overlord, when the Allies kind of appeared offshore and started landing, calls went out all across Europe um, within the Nazi headquarters to say, "Hey, this is the landing." And then it was kind of, you know, is it really the landing? Do we need to move troops? But they had people hundreds of miles away, units hundreds of miles away. They are trying to get there in time to stop the Allies on the beaches. This is a little bit different in Tarawa. So they're expecting landings on the southern beaches because the um, northern approach is so well protected. But as the Americans shell them and all the Japanese take cover, because they've got quite a few fortified positions, and they come back out after the shelling stop and they see the American landing craft coming in on the north side, calls go out and they say, hey, reinforce the north side. Remember, it's two miles long by 800 meters wide at its widest point. It doesn't take very long to reinforce those positions now that you see where the Americans are coming from. And one of the, so, you know, we're kind of seeing these other issues we can get into, right? We, we, the shelling wasn't sufficient and you're going to see each, each landing throughout our time in the Pacific is going to become more and more severe. I mean, it's like setting records each time, each time is going to be the longest bombardment or the most shells or, or whatever it might be, the most concentrated we, we rarely go backwards and say, well, we're not going to hit this one as hard as last time because every single time, it seems, the Japanese are more dug in and more well-protected and, and more of them come out after the fact to engage us. So we maybe didn't shell it as hard as we should have um, or as long as we should have. Um, another major issue we're going to run into here, it's going to be a major, major learning point, is we don't have the tides calculated as specifically as we should have. So there's a coral reef about 500 meters offshore at Tarawa. And at, at, we have to have a, you know, it was like four or five feet. The water has to be over that, that reef or the landing craft won't make it. 
And there were some issues with the tides this day and, and the U S launched anyways. And a lot of those landing craft couldn't make it past the coral reef, which means that Marines loaded down with equipment were let go many times, hundreds of yards from the beach. And they either, uh, well, a lot drowned the amount of weight they had on, pulled them right to the bottom. And if you couldn't swim, or even if you could swim, if the water was too deep, you couldn't get out of your gear fast enough and drown instantly without even firing a shot, right? Without even seeing the enemy, maybe not even seeing the shore. You step off and that's that. Those that did make it to shallow enough water um, were dealing with mass amounts of Japanese crossfire hammering the beaches as they tried to wade through knee, chest, shoulder deep water had to move through that into gunfire before they could even come ashore. So there were, we're not going to dive into it here, but there were also communications issues between a couple of the adjacent units. Nonetheless, this is the first contested landing for the United States in the war. So looking back, I'm inclined to say that, of course, it's not going to go perfectly, but there's a lot of casualties and we, we learned a lot of lessons. There were a lot of casualties. It's, it's, it's so hard to look back and say, man, you should have done this or you should have done that. Um, but I think lives were saved later in the conflict because of the things we learned at Tarawa. Anyways, if we move to 20 November, 1943, as American forces are, as Marines are landing at Tarawa, there are about 2,600 Japanese fighters on the island and a fair amount of, uh, of laborers, Korean laborers, kind of slave laborers, if you will. There's about 18,000 Marines that will take part in this battle. The overall size of the force is going to be about 35,000. That includes um, many sailors out in the fleet, of course. Now, as the Marines are moving ashore, there's going to be folks uh, that are part of what's called like a landing party. And that landing party is organizing people on the beaches and directing them inland. So they're, they're maybe consolidating supply points or medical evacuation points. And think of this, remove the battlefield aspect of this. It's like a traffic cop. It's, it's somebody that stands there and, you know, engineers to my left and, um, you know, medics to my right. And if you're coming into fight, move north 200 meters and if you need to exit the battlefield for recent like they're conducting everything moving it around in the battlefield the challenge of that as lieutenant alexander bonnieman would find out on tarawa is there's nothing calm about this you don't know who's coming ashore nothing is working out as planned remember many of these troops couldn't make it past the coral reef so now there's these tracked amphibious vehicles that are kind of making it in but now they're the only vehicles within sight of the shore so guess what they're getting shot at by everything. And so many of them are broken down and destroyed and the troops are killed. And the number of people and equipment and ammunition that hit the beach is just, just random. It's not as planned and not as hoped. There has been pretty substantial devastation in the water leading up to the landings of Tarawa. So you've got people like Lieutenant Bonnieman who has to figure out how to get these folks off the shore inland a little bit to have some kind of toehold. So what he does on D-Day is moves up and down the beach for hours. He spends his time, rather than directing traffic, which he, he's still doing, but seeing the chaos, he is running around collecting demolitions charges, 
collecting flamethrowers and organizing men to lead into assault to take out various Japanese positions that are holding up other Marines. Now, Bonnyman enlisted originally in the Marine Corps at this, well, he was exempt from service at the start of the war because of the, the job he held. He ignored that, enlisted, and spent time in, in a role kind of like combat engineer. He was the, he was then uh, he then earned a battlefield commission. So he was enlisted for a period of time, enlisted, fought at Guadalcanal, battlefield commission. Now he's a first lieutenant. Um, so when he's on the beach and sees demo and flamethrowers and enemy emplacements that need to be destroyed, this is the guy who knows how to do that. That's what he was doing in the Marine Corps um, before he earned his commission. So he spends all of D-Day just destroying position after position, leading his men in, in that attack. Now, the Battle of Tarawa is short. It's considered to be about 76 hours long, start to finish. And, and there were holdouts, but the bulk of the fighting took place in a 76-hour window of time. So it's just not... It's a lot of violence in a small window on a small island is what it boils down to. And as Bonnie men and his men gather their foot or gain their foothold on, on 20 November, they're going to continue the fight again the next day. You're going to see a little bit of repositioning with the Marines. They're going to cut off part of the island, land reinforcements, and continue to push. But again, keep in your mind, two miles by 800 meters, this is a tiny strip of land. And it's going to end up, so maybe the, the 76 hours seems short, maybe it seems long, but it was just a nasty, brutal fight foot by foot on Tarawa. The Japanese did not surrender. Remember we said there were, what, 2,600 Japanese on the island? At the end of the battle, there would be 17 remaining survivors. They fought to the death for every foot, every inch of land on Tarawa. Now, by the third day, as the Marines continued to be held up, Lieutenant Bonnyman spots a, identifies a bunker complex. And that's part of the reason that the Marines are having so many issues on terror, as, as, as any force would have anywhere. When the enemy has the ability to dig in, build defensive networks, and, and build a defensive plan and, and protect themselves, it's just going to be nastier and nastier to try to take that. This bunker complex, if you will, that Bonnyman finds is might have hold 150 Japanese soldiers. It's big. We're not talking about like a machine gun pit. It's a big, big complex. It's about 40 meters ahead of American lines. And to get there, uh, Bonnyman resupplies everything he can, demo charges, flamethrowers, grenades, ammunition, rifles, grabs his men and, and, and assaults. It's going to take two of these assaults before he reaches gets to the position to where he can. Remember, this is a guy that's got some demolitions experience, some some uh, kind of CB combat engineer type experience. And he places demolitions charges at two entrances, as well as on the top or on the kind of the roof portion, if you will, um, of the bunker. He detonates those charges. And you're hoping for a handful of things. If, if maybe it caves part of it in, maybe it destroys the whole thing. Maybe it'll, it'll set off a charge inside and, but you got to do something um, to help destroy this, this fighting position. And what happens here is it, it's the, the blasts are so devastating that the Japanese soldiers inside flee, run out. They're, they're not going to stay in this, 
this maybe collapsing bunker and be buried underground any longer. So over 100 Japanese soldiers exit the bunker and start running. Now, because Bonnyman was up there placing the charges, he is right there as the Japanese are fleeing in chaos. The Marine units to his left and right are opening fire and mowing down the enemy soldiers as they exit. And Bonnyman opens fire as well. The only difference is he is at close range to all of these Japanese fighters that exited the bunker expecting to see Americans right there. Bonnyman kills a few enemy as they run, but in short order is shot and killed at the age of 33 on November 23rd, 1943. Now that bunker was holding up his Marines and by destroying it, he allowed his guys to hold on to beat back the kind of final Japanese counterattack. And by the end of the day, as we look back now, be able to say they wrapped up the fighting during the battle of Tarawa and for his leadership, his bravery and his courage during the three days of that fight, first Lieutenant Alexander Bonnyman would be awarded posthumously the medal of honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.